Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Casual Martial Artist with your hosts, Al and Marcus. So today we're going to be doing another one of our Spotlight episodes, and this is one where uh, Marcus is going to be leading the discussion is because, you know, last time we were talking about BJJ, which is more up your alley. And today we're going to be talking about Kung Fu, which is a bit more up my alley. So how you doing today, Marcus? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, now that summer's finally winding down, uh, I mean, the only thing is it just makes me think of all the yard work that I, I should have did over the summer, but hoping to get out there and do before it gets too cold, you know? Right. No doubt. No doubt. So, as I said, we're going to be talking about Kung Fu today, and the first thing I should mention, and again, if we have any listeners out there who actually uh, practice Kung Fu as well, we should mention that when we call this martial art Kung Fu, we are technically making a mistake, because the word Kung Fu actually is not a word for a martial art, but rather it's a term that means mastery. Thus, if you are trying to get really good at something, whether it's football, basketball, jujitsu, underwater basket weaving, if you're trying to get really good in an area of skill or expertise, it's correct to say that you are practicing Kung Fu in it. You're trying to get really good at it. So the proper term for the martial art that we now call Kung Fu, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this because I don't know how to pronounce Chinese, uh, Zhanggo Wushu is the correct name, and that is liter- translates something to the effect of martial art. Now, the second part, Wushu, might sound familiar, because that has actually become uh, the name of a, a sport. Uh, it's like the sporting form of Kung Fu. Uh, however, Wushu has evolved to become not just more of like a competitive fighting art but also one that does more does a lot of like flashy movements and choreographed combat so if you look up wushu videos on youtube you'll find a lot you'll find a lot of them and again they're just doing choreographed movements but still some of that stuff is really freaking awesome um also another thing we should mention before we begin is that we're going to be scratching the surface of a lot of stuff because this is a topic we can easily come back to. There are several dozen styles of Kung Fu. And the specific one I studied is Tiger Claw. So things in Tiger Claw Kung Fu are not the same, necessarily the same as they were in Eagle Claw Kung Fu or you know Lion Kung Fu or Praying Mantis Kung Fu. Uh, there's there's going to be a huge variety between different styles and we'll touch into that a little bit more as the show progresses so why don't we begin and uh go ahead and ask marcus if you could take it away please okay um what has your experience been with the say the circular styles versus the linear punching styles um i'm thinking when i say circular something like shaolin kung fu or versus something like wing chun kung fu well for me uh the style of Kung Fu I study was definitely more circular, mm-hmm. where there was a lot of emphasis on trying more to get out of the way and redirecting attacks as opposed to, you know, just blocking them. So that actually took a little getting used to because I the first martial art I studied was karate. Right. So going from karate where there is a lot of linear footwork 
um, and linear movements to going to Kung Fu where it was a bit more circular, a bit more fluid. It took a little bit of getting used to, but I actually did end up preferring that type of movement as opposed to the, uh, you know, as opposed to the more linear movements in Tang Sudo. Right. Um, I found it interesting that, because um, I'm a huge fan of what's called Sanshu kickboxing. Basically, it's uh, the full contact version of Kung Fu that they're doing now in China and Taiwan. And I always thought the really wide circular punches that they throw were kind of, you know, dangerous. But there's kind of method to their madness, because if they miss something like that or um, their opponent tries to get inside them while they're doing that, then they, they're in position for like a a throw from like a judo or wrestling type throw when they get in close. So someone like me who studied mostly linear styles like boxing and whatnot, um, you know, they gave me an extra perspective. I mean, I, I still probably wouldn't do that as the majority of my hand techniques, but still, still I could see like the philosophy behind it. Yeah. And, and again, with a lot of the more circular movements for us did tend to come more with the blocks Mm -hmm. Um, because again, there was a bit, you know, early on, you know, of course there is that, you know, a lot of your basic blocks are going to be similar to what you would learn in karate or Taekwondo. Uh, you know, it uses the same, essentially the same blocks, inside block, outside block, high block, low block. But then as, again, as you started to get a little bit more in the style, there was a bit more emphasis on again, parrying and, using a, a bit more defensive footwork. Mm -hmm. Have you had an experience with the so-called um, internal styles of Kung Fu? I'm thinking Tai Chi, Bagua, or Singai. Uh, not too much, um, at least not from when I was actually studying Kung Fu, mm -hmm. uh, because the, the martial art I'm studying now, Kung Nu, they do incorporate some elements of Tai Chi. And I know, well, occasionally my Kung Fu instructor did have us do uh, pushing and sticking hand drills, mm -hmm. but we didn't really get much into the whole idea of, um, you know, the internal aspects where you're trying to, you know, work with your chi. Uh, right. We definitely were not the, the no touch style of martial art, which I know they're out there and, you know, we've talked about them in the past, how, you know, essentially, yeah, just if, if someone's promising no touch knockouts, Go to the jujitsu uh, place down the street. They'll, they'll teach you better martial arts in the no-touch places, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tell me about, if you would, your experience with uh, your, your particular style, how you came into it. Okay. Well, uh, the I came into it my sophomore year in college. Uh, my first year, as I studied Tang Sudo and Eskrima, and that's when my, you know, about halfway through the year, my karate instructor found out that I was doing a scream on he's like well you should have asked me about that and then it's like well you didn't tell me that I couldn't study multiple martial arts mm -hmm. um so he said we'll let you finish out the year but for next year you have to choose one or the other and I had developed a bit more of a bond with my mar with my Eskrima instructor mm -hmm. uh and so I decided well I was going to keep doing a screama, but I decided to look for something else and right. uh when I was on campus I remember seeing the a flyer for Kung Fu and the instructor, Tim, I, I remember he came because uh, he had a couple of students that were uh, college students. Right. So he had just like an informational meeting at, in a LB hall, which was 
at UW Oshkosh that's your your gym your gym and physical uh you know physical education center there at least I think it still is because I mean I know they've made a lot of changes at UWO so it wouldn't surprise me if they if they don't use it for as much as they used to but that's beside the point well anyways and you know he demonstrated some forms told us a little bit about kung fu he had a couple of his students there tell us a little bit about what they liked about tiger claw and that's when i'm like you know i think i'll give it a try and the the tuition was reasonable i think it was about thirty dollars a month Mm -hmm. um I don't remember if classes were an hour, an hour and a half, and it was within a reasonable walking distance from campus. Right. So I, you know, I checked it out and I liked it. And I'd have to say one of the things that really was challenging at first is Kung Fu is famous for like doing animal stances and mimicking the movements of certain animals. Mm -hmm. And the, in Tiger Claw, there were several stances that we did for during warm up. Cobra stance, dragon stance, crane stance, cat stance, and horse stance. And again, they were used mostly just kind of limber and warm up. But a couple of them, the cobra stance and dragon stance, uh, just doing that, it's like I was using muscles I didn't know I had. Right. So it's like I remember, uh, you know, it took me a couple weeks to really adjust to that. And it's like after doing those, you know, those uh, those stances to warm up, I'm like, oh, my legs are killing me. Right. <laughs> Do you remember offhand how many forms your particular style had? So, yes, the system that I studied, there were, well, there were five basic forms, and then there were two more advanced forms. So Mm -hmm. the way the ranking system went is white belt, yellow belt, orange belt, uh, green belt, blue belt, purple belt, and then black belt. And everyone always learned the same five Uh, basic stances for white belt it was called blocking square yellow belt was called little tiger Uh, orange belt was tiger Uh, green belt is called that forms called eagle and then uh, blue belt is called golden eagle now this is one thing that's interesting is after you get past that point when you get to your purple belt you learn your my instructor had a 30 technique form that i had to learn and then for black belt I had to develop my own form of 15 techniques. So his particular tech form started out as just 15 techniques, uh, but eventually he added on to it. Um, so it was, his was called Panther. Um, and then, so, and I said, I also developed my own form for black belt. So, I mean, that's interesting because I know a lot of martial arts, uh, when you do get higher level, you are expected to, develop your own techniques because i know we do that in kung nu where for each rank advancement you have to show that you can come up with applications for the movements and the forms but in again in, in tiger claw you had to create your own form to get black belt and i'm not sure if there's other kung fu styles that do that uh like i said tiger claw is the only one i have so that's the only one i can speak to from a first-hand personal experience Mm-hmm. That's the only one I've ever heard of that where you made your own. That's really interesting. Actually, I like that idea. Yeah, and the way my instructor described it, it's like okay, think of it kind of like writing a final exam, like a final term paper for a class. Mm-hmm. You know, the the first five forms that you learned, that's your research material, and then again, your the 
the sixth form you learn, the instructor's form, that would also be considered part of it as well. So one, it, it took me a few tries to actually come up with my form. Mm-hmm. And the, I remember one of the things that he always asked me when I was demonstrating this techniques is, okay, how is that Kung Fu? Um, so one of the things is you're not allowed to, okay, your, your techniques couldn't be just basic, like, okay, block, punch, counter. It had to actually, you know, apply the things that you learned in the other forms. So right. I did, yeah, I did find that was, I thought that was interesting. And again, it shows that the, in Tiger Claw, you're expected to not just memorize techniques, but be able to show that you know how to do, you know how to make use of all this material to create something new. Right. I started working at my my black belt form when I was my senior year in college. Unfortunately, just because of circumstances, I never really got around to it, uh, to finishing it, and I didn't actually finish it until 2015. But I can tell you one thing, it's like, if I did complete my black belt form back then, it would have been way different than the one that I did when I showed it to my instructor in 2015. Right. Mainly because, you know, back then, 1999, you know, I was in really good shape. So, I mean, the movements I had were much more athletic, uh, you know, more jumping and, and spinning around. Whereas the stuff I did in 2015, I was, you know, older, not as in, not in very good shape anymore. So, it was definitely more grounded and mm-hmm. practical. Yeah. More. Yeah. <laughs> I, for lack of a better term. Yeah. It probably would have been more practical because I wasn't trying to do all these fancy looking moves. I was trying to think more in terms of practicality as opposed mm-hmm. to, will this really look pretty? I'm just thinking more, okay, if I actually had to use this in a fight, how would it work? Right. And that comes to my next question. Um, where do you stand on separating the, more practical sides of Kung Fu as opposed to the quote unquote art side, you know? Well, I think it's definitely something that has to be there because, and I know this is a criticism that a lot of people have of traditional martial arts. Um, And again, I might, I'll go into this a little bit when we start getting into talking about the history of Kung Fu, but you know, a lot of these forms were designed to look pretty. And part of it was, because, you know, back in the old days, you couldn't just videotape yourself doing a form and then show that to people so they can uh, they can learn the form. These forms were one of the few ways you had to preserve your techniques. Um, so I think, though, even though it is, you know, it's, it's fun to develop pretty-looking techniques, we have to remember that one of the things martial arts should teach you how to do is fight and how to defend yourself. So, yeah, you do have to be able to develop techniques that are going to be practical, even if they don't look, you know, as pretty or as showy as uh, some other techniques. Mm-hmm. Have you come across any styles that um, you see and you're like, oh man, I wish I could have studied or wish I could study that? Well, thinking about it, I wish I would have had the opportunity to study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, or I tell my, wait, just Kung Fu or just yeah, any just style? Yeah, Kung Fu. Yeah. Okay. Oh, just Kung Fu. Yeah. Well, I know that there were a couple other people that did. Oh, and yes, I still would like it if I did get the chance to study BJJ someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're just I think talking, you know. I think you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you are just going by, um, you know, kung fu, I know that on campus there was a an eagle claw kung fu club, but I never really got into that group. So I think that would have been interesting to study because it sounds like they did a lot more competitive fighting. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that would have uh, been interesting to learn as well. Um, and I know there was someone else in Oshkosh. He wasn't on campus, but I think his style was called like Golden Lion Eternal Fist or something like that. It was some really no. weird name. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it just sounded interesting. I mean, hey, how would you like to be able to say, I've got a black belt in Golden Lion uh, Eternal Fist Kung Fu? Right, right. Um, I always thought, even though I learned the forms, I never really practiced formally. I always thought it would be fun to at least train with the people who knew Wing Chun pretty good. There's also a style with Tibetan roots called Lama Pai. I thought that was a really interesting style. I, I wish I could have trained in. But um, I don't know, the San Shu stuff that I keep telling you about, the Chinese kickboxing, that stuff looks really, really effective and really interesting. So the way they clinch and take you down from the clinch is really, 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 really hot. Yeah, and that's something I think would be interesting to check out, too, because, again, just the style of Kung Fu I studied, we never really got into ground fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, the I, we, we had takedowns, and we had joint locks, joint manipulations, and, you know, close-up grappling, but it was all standing. We never went down to the ground. Um, and I think one of the reasons, and I'm not sure how, if my instructor was embellishing on things, but... One of the things we did train a lot in Tiger Claw was dealing with multiple attackers. Mm -hmm. So we had drills where it's like, okay, we would do two-on-one, three-on-one, which, again, the looking back, the practicality of that, it's not necessarily bad to know how to do, um, but I think any experienced martial artist is going to tell you that if you are faced with multiple people, your best bet is to get the heck out of there. Exactly. you know, because, well, it looks awesome in movies where you've got the lone kung fu master taking down, you know, a dozen attackers. In real life, people are going to gang up on you. They're going to try to, someone's going to try to pin you back so someone can come and punch you in the stomach. So, exactly. you know, even, I don't care how good you are, yeah, you're usually in, in, uh, facing multiple attackers. Your best defense is probably the 100 yard dash. Exactly. But, I still thought it was interesting to learn because, again, it got you to thinking, okay, if you were facing multiple people, there are certain things you don't want to do. You don't want to commit yourself to one attacker. Uh, Like, you know, okay, if like say you were, you know, you threw a punch at me, I blocked it and I get you into like a front headlock, that wouldn't be as effective if you had like a friend standing nearby because he could come and, you know, punch me in the back while I'm sitting there trying to... I think it's called to do like a guillotine choke on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it was still interesting because it also taught you again, how to be more aware of your situation and your surroundings. Um, so do you want to get into the history end of it? Now, the earliest mention of any sort of systemized martial art in China dates back to around the fifth century BC. The roots of Kung Fu as we know them didn't really start to form until around 500 BC, uh, 500 AD. Uh, that's when a Buddhist monk from India came to China to set up a monastery to teach Buddhism. And while there, he found out that his students couldn't meditate without falling asleep. So he developed a series of exercises to help them grow stronger, or at least that's the popular story. Uh, there's some debate as to the historical accuracy of it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of this, the current styles that we see are probably a bit more recent in that they probably only developed within the last few hundred years. Right. Well, 
In the late 1200s, it became illegal to practice Kung Fu in groups in China. So the practice started to move underground. Uh, this ban actually lasted up until 1911. So uh, public practice of martial arts, though, once again became forbidden during China's Cultural Revolution from 1969 to 1976. And it was during this time where uh, some people have suggested that the emphasis became more on producing these beautiful flowery movements and forms. Uh, and there's a couple reasons for that. The powers that be probably thought it would be, okay, if they're doing all these pretty moves, they're not going to focus much on actually learning how to fight. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you know, governments sometimes don't want their civilians to know how to defend themselves. Exactly. Well, uh, also, one of the things my Kung Fu instructor rules told me is that a lot of the moves and the forms that we knew were either heavily exaggerated or weren't exactly like they were pictured in the form. Or rather, the, the movement in the form wasn't always the same as how you would perform the technique. And part of the rationale behind that was to hide your, your move so that way someone who's just watching it wouldn't necessarily be able to learn how to execute it. Yeah, execute it correctly. Mm -hmm. So Kung Fu is believed to have came come to the U.S. Uh, with Chinese immigrants during the early 1900s. Uh, it is commonly believed in some circles that Chinese martial artists back then and up until recently wouldn't teach outside their communities. Um, but this this attitude did not appear to be universal. Because uh, you might remember a few episodes ago when we talked about martial arts urban legends, we discussed the fight between Wong Jack Man and Bruce Lee, where, you know, again, the popular story is that the reason that uh, they wanted Bruce Lee to fight is because some members of the Chinese community didn't like the fact that he was teaching non-Chinese people Kung Fu. So... Uh, but again, that's that's very much in doubt as to whether that was true, because Wong Jack Man actually said he didn't discriminate when it came to his students. Uh, his account was more. Uh, his account was more that it's because Bruce be, uh, bragged that he could defeat any fighter in the San Francisco area, so he is like, okay, challenge accepted. Right. So I guess the first story is a bit romantic and a bit more dramatic, whereas the, the second one, if you think about it, it's kind of boring. Hey, here's a guy who publicly boasts he can beat anybody. Okay, well, eventually someone's going to take that up. Right. Also, it's interesting to note when we look at the history of Kung Fu, how there's different families of Kung Fu, but most fall into either the Northern styles or Southern styles. Northern styles of Kung Fu tend to focus more on kicks, higher stances, spinning moves, and also tend to do more with weapons. And Southern styles of Kung Fu, and as I recall, Tiger Claws falls more along the lines of the Southern styles, uh, they tend to do more punches, more close-up fighting, lower stances. And there's a couple of theories as to why. Uh, one of the theories is that the Northern part of China tends to be flatter, so you didn't have to have worry as much about having a stable stance. Mm -hmm. um, also, since it was more rural, you're more likely to do your fighting in wide open areas. 
So you could do these sweeping movements and, you know, you'd have room to use, you know, spears and staves and other weapons. Well, southern China tends to be a bit more rugged. Uh, some areas are a bit more mountainous and also some of the areas are a bit more swampy. Uh, also in southern China along the coasts, they were more likely to have to engage in ship versus ship combat. So as a result, southern practitioners tended to find lower stances as well as punching to be more suited to their environment. Mm -hmm. Also, since at the time, uh, southern China was more populated, you are more likely to have to fight in a rural, I'm sorry, not a rural, but an urban area. Right. So again, if you're on a crowded street, you're not going to have really have the room to do these sweeping movements and these spinning kicks. So getting up there and, you know, getting really close and punching someone is going to be more beneficial than doing a triple spinning jump kick. Um, there's some debate as to the validity of these claims and these theories. Uh, so I was actually reading a few martial arts forums to get more insight as, as preparing for this episode. And one person did actually make an interesting comment. And again, he didn't have anything to back it up. It was just a theory, but I think it sounds plausible. He compared it to food. It's like, you know how in some re some regions they become well known for using a certain type of ingredient in a lot of their cuisine. Right. Well, it might just be that it's because people in that particular area happen to like that particular fruit or that particular spice, which is why they use it in a lot of their recipes. So it's quite possible that maybe people in northern China just found that they liked doing these spinning kicks and, you know, doing these really flashy movements where people in self, for whatever reason, they just preferred the, you know, more close in and punching style, which, again... Not really any evidence to support that theory. He was saying it's just a, a, a possibility, but I think it sounds possible. You know, it sounds somewhat plausible. Personally, where do you fall on that? Now, as far as where I fall, I think that the environmental theory probably plays a big role. So I'm a little bit more along the lines of thinking that, yeah, the terrain influenced how they would fight. And as far as how I pref what I prefer. I do prefer the close-up style where, yeah, you do get up and, because uh, again, I'm a tiger claw, it was a lot of getting close, closing the distance, and then trapping. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's something when, uh, when in, in Kung Nu, uh, sometimes when I'm sparring with my instructor, she tries to, you know, kind of go like, okay, I know you can trap. Let's try not to focus too much on trapping. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess that I've, I've kept that part of Kung Fu alive, the getting close and trapping and um, so yeah. Okay. What have you found with your studying that, um, about the differences between the styles that come from a Buddhist philosophy as opposed to the styles that come from the more Taoist philosophy? That I haven't, actually, I haven't really looked too, too much into that. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I, I might be wrong on this, but I think that the Northern styles tended to focus more on either Taoism or Buddhism for their philosophies, mm -hmm. whereas the Southern uh, styles tended to be a bit more into Confucianism. Right. Now, the particular place where I studied Kung Fu, we really didn't get into the philosophical side of it, um, but I think I would probably go more along the lines of, I, I like more of the Buddhist and Taoist approach, because mm -hmm. as I recall with Taoism, one of the things they believe in there is doing things with the Tao. 
you're doing things as they should be done, not how you want them to be done or how you think they should be done. Um, Because I don't know if you remember this story or not. Uh, You remember when we took Dr. Bean's class on mysticism? Right. And one of the books I remember we had was The Essential Mystics by Andrew Harvey. And I think this is where that story was. It was about the cook and the ox, where there was a prince that was watching a a chef slice up uh, an, an ox carcass to prepare it for, for food. And he was just marveled at how easily he could, you know, he could uh, cut apart this, uh, this, this ox carcass. And the, the uh, cook was explaining that, well, when he first started, he just hacked and he usually had to replace his knife every year. But mm-hmm. then he stopped seeing the big picture. He started seeing the little details. So he was going on about how since I've got enough room now cutting it the way it should be cut, I, ne- I haven't had to sharpen my knife in 10 years. Uh, so that I remember that one. And I remember they were also talking about how a, a, drunk, you know, a drunk man can fall off a cart and not be hurt because he keeps himself whole with the power of wine because um, he doesn't realize he's falling. And... Right. I actually thought about that, and sometimes when I have to do rolls in Kung Nu because we do some breakfalls and rolls, right? I try to keep that in mind because I often find I sometimes freeze up and I mess up the roll. But then again, like I said, I'm not in as good shape as I used to be. But again, I try to keep that mentality in mind where sometimes, yeah, you just have to kind of let things come naturally and not think too much about what you're doing. Right. Um, so I mean, I certainly can uh, agree with that. That you know, more Taoist philosophy. And then as far as with the Buddhist philosophy, um, you know, I guess one of the things I always did like about Buddhism as a philosophy is how, uh, again, I don't practice it as a religion, but as a philosophy, um, this idea of no, realizing your, conse- your actions have consequences, which is why I'm glad that Kung Fu did talk, uh, you know, did go into like locks and takedowns rather than just punching and kicking. Because sometimes, yeah, it is very, you might, sometimes you might be in a self-defense situation where, you know, you can't just beat someone up. You Mm -hmm. have to keep, you have to keep the consequences of your actions in mind. And it's beneficial to subdue them rather than, you know, punch them and knock them out and risk causing permanent injury. Right. Um, how much can you say, what can you say about, uh, the influence of, um, Chinese martial arts on Kung Nu and other martial arts. Because I know in Japan they have Shorinji Kempo, which um, basically is the Japanese translation of Shaolin Fist. And I know there's styles, certain styles of Salat that are um, in Indonesia that are descended from Chinese styles. But what about Kung Nu? Well, with Kung Nu, the, uh, the two styles that are within the Chinese martial arts family that they draw inspiration from are Wing Chun and Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. So uh, just as where I am now, we haven't done as much with the chi- with the uh, the Tai Chi, mostly the pushing hands. But again, and that's one of the things my instructor has tried to you know work with me on is okay. Sometimes I do tend to be fall back to more of a hard style where I tend to use too much force. So we definitely try to work on redirecting force and doing learning how to block both in hard style and soft style. Now, as far as the Wing Chun, I know they focus a lot on the center line principles. Mm-hmm. that Wing Chun does, and I know we practice some blocks and punches from an inward stance, 
which right. is more of like a very narrow horse stance that they use in Wing Chun. That part I'm not really too fond of, um, just because I think it's more practical to practice blocks from a fighting stance because that's exactly. how you're that's where you're going to use them. Right. I mean, I know they do this in a lot of martial arts when you're first learning. They have you do right. it from a horse stance. Well, right. if I'm in a bar and someone's picking a fight with me, I'm not going to like get in a horse stance and spread my legs wide out because he's probably going to try to do a field goal on me, you know? Perfectly said. Yep. <laughs> so, but I do like the whole idea of getting out of the way, um, which is helpful because there's a, another sensei that moved into our area um, and he comes up in, you know, he comes and works out with us every now and then. Uh, he, you know, he's a really cool guy, but this guy is probably close to seven feet tall. So, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how tall he is, but he's he's well over six and a half. I can tell you that. Wow. So, I mean, sparring with him is always challenging because, I mean, it's a lot harder to close the distance when, you know, his kicks are like almost as tall as, <laughs> you know, almost my, well, not almost my height, but you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's a lot harder uh, to, and, you know, he's tall and he's strong, so... Um, I really have to adapt my fighting style and, uh, you know, when I'm sparring against him, but it's right. still a good experience to, you know, to, to work out against people who are taller and stronger than you are. Right. So, um, in your studies, what have you come across that, um, having to do with martial arts or Kung Fu specifically in pop culture? My personal opinion. So of course you're all welcome to agree or disagree with me on this. I think when you look at the impact that martial arts have had on popular culture, I would argue that Kung Fu has probably had the biggest impact on popular culture than most other martial arts. Uh, because, I mean, you know, there's actually several different genres of Kung Fu uh, films. And I think that's where a lot of people get their first uh, experience with Kung Fu by watching, you know, old Golden Harvest or old Shaw Brother movies. Now, there's a few different genres of kung fu cinema. The two main ones are wuxia and then what some people just generically label as kung fu films. The main difference, uh, have you ever seen any of the old Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest movies? I'm sure I have, but I wouldn't be able to tell you that this is that or this is that. Yeah, because the Shaw Brothers, I know, did a lot of uh, wuxia, and what those are, uh, the, the name Wuxia means something to the effect of martial hero. Mm -hmm. Usually the characters, the protagonists of these films are from lower social classes and they usually defended commoners against, you know, outlaws, criminals, and the upper class. Mm -hmm. uh, but what really sets it apart is Wuxia films tended to be set in ancient China and often featured a lot of fantasy elements like flying through the air and running across water. Okay, so I've definitely uh, seen a lot of those. Yeah, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a right. good one. Um, when we're talking about Shaw Brothers, one of my favorites there is probably The Five Venoms. Uh, so really good movie. Highly recommend if uh, you, know, you check it out if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think Kung Fu really lended itself well to cinema because it has this history and tradition of these, you know, from these forms of doing all these pretty flowing movements. Uh, you know, and as we discussed last time, well, something in BJJ, taking someone down to the ground and putting them in a rear naked choke might 
be very effective in the street, but it doesn't look as pretty on cinema or on, on screen as doing a spinning kick or doing all these weird hand motions where you're making your hands look like tiger claws or cobras or something. Right. Um, so I think the, that whole idea of these movements that try to mimic animals really lent itself well to, uh, to cinema. Um, also another thing with Wuxia films is they tended to focus more on, they did more work with swords and weapons than your basic Kung Fu film. Now, what some people just call your basic Kung Fu film, Bruce Lee did a lot of these. Usually these films were set in contemporary times, so they were modern, didn't really do much with swords, and focused mostly on realistic-looking fights and hand-to-hand combat. Because uh, I remember there was an interview with Bruce Lee where someone was asking him how come he doesn't do swords in any of his movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in typical Bruce Lee fashion, very straightforward, was like, well, no one carries a sword around anymore. Right. You right. know, if someone sees you carrying a sword down the street, what are they going to do? And then he makes a, you know, a gun motion with his hand, you know. Right. So that's one of the reasons he avoided doing weapons in most of his movies. And he certainly wasn't the only person to try to step away from the whole fantasy Wuxia films. Uh, There were certainly other people before him that tried to focus on those realistic-looking fights. Uh, And, I mean, I don't know exactly what it was that kicked off the Kung Fu craze in the 70s and in the 60s and 70s. Um, And again, I think it was just because this was a time where martial arts were starting to become more mainstream and just something about Kung Fu with its, you know, flowing, uh, wide sweeping movements and its mix of, you know, mysticism uh, and philosophy just lended itself well to movies. And that just really caught hold in popular culture. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you remember there's a, there's that famous song, you know, Everyone's Kung Fu Fighting by Carl right. Douglas. And, you know, then, of course, Jackie Chan comes along and he popularized the, you know, the Kung Fu comedy genre. Right. Which, um, I, I, I actually, I like Jackie Chan movies. I haven't seen any recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, Rumble in the Bronx was a good one. Um, I've He's done a, li- a couple of uh, films that would border a little bit on the Wuxia because I know I've seen a couple of them where they did do, they were set in ancient China as opposed to the modern day. Mm-hmm. But oh, that guy's got to be crazy. I mean, I know he, I know he holds the Guinness World Record for the most stunts performed by an actor. Right. And I was reading somewhere that he's broken, I think he's broken every bone in his body at least once. Wow. I was amazed he could get insured, you know, in the film industry in this country. So he must have been, they must have warned him not to do too many of his own things. Yeah, or they probably used, uh, you know, more safety stuff than he's used to using. Right, right. I don't remember which movie it was, but there's one where he's like hanging from a helicopter. And the reason he looks terrified is that's not a green screen. Right. There's no safety harnesses. He was hanging for dear life from a helicopter. That is nuts, man. You know, if he would have let go, he, he'd be the late Jackie Chan. <laughs> right, right. So who would you recommend Kung Fu for? You know, what kind of martial artist or what kind of person looking, what would they be looking for? What, what would you, how would you tell them to pursue it? I would certainly recommend Kung Fu for anyone who's interested in self-defense, philosophy, and fitness. Um, because 
I mean, I don't think I'd recommend it solely for someone who's interested in pursuing a career in competitive fighting, uh, mainly because, again, the style of Kung Fu I studied, it didn't go into ground fighting. So, I mean, if you were to put someone who's trained in Tiger Claw against a UFC fighter, most likely they would, unless they had some form of grappling training from something else, they probably wouldn't last as long. Um, but I mean, I th I think with the animal, some of the animal stances we did, and the emphasis on forms, and I, I mean, I know we have differing opinions on forms, but um, if anything, I mean, my personal opinion is I think they are good for exercise. So I would definitely recommend it for someone who wants the fitness aspect of martial arts. Now, if you've got a good instructor who's not going into the whole no touch knockouts and you know, focusing your chi and doing stuff like that. Again, like my first Kung Fu instructor, he taught it as a very much as a no-nonsense martial art. Yeah, it's got its pretty components, but you can also use it to really hurt people. So I think some of it would be practical in a self-defense situation. Um, and again, if you are one of the kind of people who likes to have a strong philosophical background, it can be a good art for that purpose. Um, because I know there are some styles of Kung Fu where they really do get into philosophy. Again, my instructor, my first instructor never really got into the philosophical components of, of Kung Fu. The second instructor that I had got into it a little bit, but it's not something that we, you know, focused on every single class. Mm -hmm. Okay. So any closing thoughts about Kung Fu and Chinese martial arts? Well, I mean, I think that to some extent, I think they get a little bit of a bad rap because, um, I mean, you know, there's that, that I, I don't remember the guy's name, but he's a Chinese mixed martial artist and he, he's, he issues challenge fights where he goes against like Tai Chi masters and people who do like the no touch knockouts. And I guess he's gotten like death threats and, and stuff because a lot of, people in China don't like him because basically he's showing that his, uh, you know, these, these traditional Chinese martial arts aren't as effective as people like to think they are. But I think we should really take, um, I think we should use that as a learning experience that maybe, you know, people who do study Kung Fu, we have to learn to adapt our training methods. Um, cause again, with my first instructor, we didn't do as much sparring in that particular class. So we didn't get as much as the active resistance. Whereas with my second instructor, we did a bit more sparring. Well, mm -hmm. when the guy showed up, because this was a guy who I talked about before, how, you know, two or three times a month, he would just not show up and never tell me about it. But, right. um, so, I mean, I think if you got, have a good instructor and one who realizes that, Yes, we do need to incorporate some of these, you know, modern training techniques along with the traditional ones. I think it can be a good style for both fitness and self-defense. Okay. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. I mean, I know this is a, we could definitely come back and talk about specific styles at a later date. I would like to do something on Wing Chun later on in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe we'll come back and explore this topic somewhere down the line. But for now... Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. So, so signing off, we've got Marcus and Al, two cats who are fast as lightning, 
And sometimes we might be a little bit frightening, but we do it with expert timing. Hey, this is Nick and Alex, and we're here to tell you a little bit more about Dungeon Junkies. Now, we're a podcast that's based in Austin, Texas, and we are hell-bent on making you laugh. Absolutely. We have some fantastic storytelling uh, with some badass characters and even better music, as well as a ton of jokes to make you laugh. So join Fenworth, Taryn, and Dr. Euphoria, and our sexy DM, Kenny, on a quest to save the world or destroy it. I guess whichever one comes first. (laughs) And you can also check out our Real Talk episodes where we get meta inside our campaign and really figure out the depths of our characters and also the story. So check us out on www.dungeonjunkies.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dungeon Junkies, because not all adventurers are meant to be heroes. have been listening to a program from the point of insanity network visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows follow us on facebook and follow us on twitter at poigamestudio